Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, it's an age-old argument, providing services and or lowering taxes. That's what Hamilton City Council is wrestling with these days. And on the topic of services, after a great deal of pressure from a number of citizens groups, should Hamilton City Council reconsider clearing snow from city sidewalks? That debate's happening right now. And Canada once stood on top of the healthcare world, but, well, now we've fallen by the wayside with the rise of virtual healthcare. What do we need to do to get back on top? It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's talk about what's going to be happening with the city budgets. Uh, we, have, of course, told you that... Uh, just about every municipality now has some huge challenges uh, when it comes to their municipal budgets. A lot of that has to do with uh, some of the provincial policies that uh, were enacted a while ago. And it, well, let's face it, it's a dirty word, but I mean, it, if it's, you know, if the shoe fits, uh, there have been a lot of downloaded services, once again, that are going to go on to property taxes. And that's somewhat problematic. Uh, but therein lies the challenge, and uh, the city, notwithstanding the fact that uh, you know they think it's unfair, and I think it's unfair that the province is doing that sort of thing, uh, we're stuck with the bill. So Hamilton councillors are now refusing to expand a number of services until they get uh, this this current tax rate, which, and that's not final, by the way. But right now it's sitting at about three point five percent, and uh, apparently that's just not good enough. Certainly the residents are saying that, and many people around the council table are saying that. Uh, Ward 9 Councillor Brad Clark joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, give us uh, some uh, uh, perspective on exactly what's going on. Brad, glad you could join us today. Thanks for the time. Thank you for thinking of me, Bill. Pleasure to talk to you. Well, you know, we, we talked about the early days here, and uh, you know, the initial numbers that you guys got were pretty shocking, over 5.5%. Uh, you've whittled that down to 3.5%, but uh, clearly that's not where you want to be. That's not where you're going to end up. Uh, <laughs> Is there is there le- any meat left on the bone for you to trim here? That's that's a good question, and and what a number of councillors have been doing is is pouring over the books and and trying to find places to find efficiencies, which without really impacting broad services across the city, and 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 that's the balance. Where do you go on a situation like this? And and they, you just touched on, I think, the, the biggest challenge as uh, as a council that you have here. Uh, everybody wants lower taxes. I mean, that, you know, that's uh, that's human nature, I suppose. It's in our DNA. But if if it's going to have an impact on service levels, especially some of the key service levels, uh, there's going to be a lot of pushback and a lot of disconcerted citizens. How do you find that balance? How do you try to get the two of those set and married together so that you come up with a compromise that's going to work for everybody? That is the million-dollar question, Bill. <laughs> Actually, the $4 million question, as I think <laughs> yeah, it turns exactly. out. exactly. Um, you know, the, the, ch- the challenge is, you're absolutely correct, that residents um, just inherently don't want to pay more taxes. The challenge in Hamilton, I think, is more specific than that, because we have a number of, of residents and property owners who are living on fixed incomes, and their ability to pay more taxes is truly and legitimately uh, problematic and challenging for them. And so that's why the council has historically been so aggressive trying to keep uh, the budget increase roughly to the rate of inflation um, and so that we can, can try to balance that off. To go beyond that, we now get into service cuts. And the, the real challenge is finding the areas where we can look at efficiencies where the broader public would be accepting of those service modifications um, without, um, you know, 
the pitchforks and, and, and storming City Hall saying, no, you're not cutting these services. This is, this is um, uh, draconian and, and all the rest of it. So it's, it's a real challenge. And then in the midst of that, you have a number of residents who are asking us to spend more money in certain areas. So it, it's always a challenge, um, but we have to work through it um, both democratically and diplomatically. And, and I know, it, you know I don't want to get too deep into the weeds here when it comes to numbers, but I, the estimation that I saw from your meeting the other day is to get this down below 3%, it's a 3.5% right now, uh, you're looking for about another $4.2 million uh, to chop out of the budget, uh, which is going to be somewhat problematic uh, because, I mean, let's face it, I guess you really only have a couple of options here, don't you, Brad? You either raise user fees, which is going to tick some people off, or you start to uh, not eliminate services, but reduce some of these services, and that's going to have an impact on somebody somewhere. Yeah, and I think the the decision on the user fees has already been set. So if if we revisit that and increase them further, you're correct that that it's really going to start impacting athletic programs and seniors programs and things along that line. And I don't think there's an appetite to go down that road. I think what the councillors are doing, and I know this for a fact, is many of the councillors around the table have been meeting, looking at um, areas across the city which is are um, where we're spending money in, in programs that are, are um, legitimately, and we can verify that are underutilized uh, facilities and programs, and looking at those to see whether or not there are savings to be found. Um, so that, you know. I, I have to give the councillors credit. They've been working hard behind the scenes trying to find the ways and means to to be more efficient. Other cities, uh, not just in Canada, but right across North America, I mean, everybody's facing budget crunches these days uh, because of the economic situation. But they've had to make some of those terrible decisions. I mean, you know, where reduce the hours of libraries. You know, uh, rec centers close earlier than usual. Sometimes they're closed on weekends. I mean, some draconian things, as you mentioned. Uh, some of the American cities have gotten to the point of actually laying off uh, police and firefighters to try to save costs in situations like that. Are, are, we're not there yet, are we? No, we're not. As a matter of fact... Um, the 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 proposals that are before us right now, as you know, with police, would see an increase um, of I think it was eight to ten um, FTEs. So some of them were cadets, but eight eight, eight of them were were um, full time sworn officers. Our fire department is beginning their ten year plan, which is proposing uh, ten new FTEs. So we're, and then our paramedics. Um, our EMS is uh, needs another ambulance, which again brings on 10 FTEs. And in each of those cases, they have a very clear business case that has outlined why they need these additional people. So I can state unequivocally that in the city of Hamilton, we are not looking at cutting uh, those types of, of, of positions within our emergency services. You mentioned about some of the problems that are unique to Hamilton, Brad, and I, I think those need to be underscored. And one of them, of course, is, as you mentioned, it's, it's average income, which is lower than it is in a lot of other Ontario cities. So, I mean, ability to pay comes into mind here. And we can get into the philosophical discussion about a regressive tax like property tax, but that's not going to change anytime soon, unfortunately. So we're stuck with that. Which, But it does put added pressure on a council, doesn't it? It does, and that and that is something that I believe very sincerely is in the back of everyone's minds around that table, is that um, the ability to pay for many of our citizens in Hamilton is is very challenged, 
And so when you're looking at uh, seniors on fixed income, and we have an aging population, we have more seniors than before. I think in, in Upper Stony Creek, in my ward, we're now uh, venturing into the 20, 25% of the population is a senior citizen on fixed income. Uh, so you're starting to see that. But we also see, uh, to your point, residents who, who in Hamilton um, are not making the larger sums of money uh, there's two of them working, and, and, and they still have to pay all their bills, but the, the mortgage and then the taxes and then the utilities, um, they're really pressed, and they're living, I think the expression bill is quite literally living paycheck to paycheck. And so when we increase taxes in that environment, we truly are hitting residents who now have to make decisions as to what do they spend the money on. they got to pay their taxes, but what's left, and so it starts to to hurt their quality of life um, significantly. We should underscore here, too, I think we mention this every uh, year during the budget cycle, Brad, but uh, uh, the, the concern here is if when we're looking at, at bare numbers here, uh, wages and benefits are still the, the number one driver of that budget, aren't they? Yes, they are, uh, 100%. And so you're looking at wages, and, and I've seen numbers upwards of 80 85% of the budget is is wages and benefits. And when I start crunching the numbers, I can see very clearly that we're talking about personnel. And so on that goes to your earlier point, that if you start to look at cutting programs or eliminating programs, which is a nice sanitized way of, of saying it's the elimination of jobs. And so we want to make sure that as we're moving along in this process, that we're making informed decisions balanced decisions, um, and we're clearly making decisions in areas where programming is being underutilized dramatically. And as you mentioned, there's some pressure from from other groups here, too, and, and some of this very legitimate. I know there were some very compelling uh, pres- uh, pre- presentations the other day about snow clearing on sidewalks, uh, which I know at one point some councillors were just rather dismissive of, but I think if you look at the at the reality of, of how that impacts some people's lives, uh, my impression, Brad, is you're one of the councillors that says, look at it, let's, let's explore this anyway, instead of just dismissing it out of hand. Yeah, I, I, I never dismiss anything out of hand. I, I listen very intently to, to delegates and residents and businesses who are raising concerns and suggestions for council. Uh, with regards to the snow clearing, I've actually asked staff to come back with numbers as to what it would cost in the urbanized area of Ward 9 if we were to do a pilot just in Ward 9. I, I, I think we're, we're approaching that precipice where we have so many senior citizens who really can't get out and shovel that snow. Um, and then we have challenges with a lot of businesses who simply refuse to do it. Um, should we be looking at in terms of, of enabling people to use the sidewalks all year round, some type of program to clear the snow? The challenges that my colleagues have raised are very valid in that um, it's, it's not going to be cleared to, to the sidewalk right down to, to, to the concrete. Um, there's always a, a, a skiff of snow, if you will, on the top. And so in other jurisdictions, there has been a lot of complaints that the snow clearing uh, that is being proposed just doesn't do the test. And so we have to manage expectations if we were to go out there and, and begin snow clearing on all the sidewalks across the city. 
And again, if we did that, it would increase the cost to to the, the, the taxpayers. Yeah, and obviously the, you always use Ancaster as, as the example because uh, that's a holdover from pre-amalgamation days, uh, t- the town of Ancaster in those days, uh, and still does. And, and we see that in our neighborhoods where I live in Ancaster as well. And uh, it works, I got to tell you, and, and it's, it's good to see that. I, you know, We talked about this as a safety issue, and I know that's what a number of your presenters talked about. We're going to get into this more detail a little bit later on in the show. Uh, but there is a cost, but there's a cost to not doing it, too, uh, that uh, has to be considered in here. And that, and, and that has to be assessed, Bill. We need yeah. to understand what the what the true impact to the taxpayers are for all the slips and falls and all of the liability. need to assess and understand um, how important it is to people who are disabled to have access to the sidewalks just to get to doctor's appointments and grocery stores and things along that line. Um, and And... I would also argue there's an impact, uh, perhaps a positive one, to businesses. If the sidewalks are cleared, then in snow events, they're not losing income because people aren't coming into their store. If the, if the sidewalks are cleared two, three days afterwards, then the business continues to, to thrive. Well, that's a debate that uh, the council is going to have to have sooner than later, I guess. We'll, we'll get into that, I'm sure, in the days and weeks ahead. Uh, staff tell us that you're still on schedule, that uh, usually, I guess, by the end of March, early part of May, that, uh, or April, rather, uh, that you're going to have this put to bed. What what number do you have in your head that you would be satisfied with? Uh, when uh, I know some people would just say, hey, no tax increase at all. I don't know how realistic that is. Uh, tying it to cost of living seems to be a lot more practical these days. So are you looking at 2.5% here? To, can, uh, that's an awful lot of money. That's about $8 million to cut out of what you've got in front of you right now. Yeah. I, I mean, I've always been one to try to get it as close as possible to the cost of living. Um, and there, and there, we, we really, I, I have, like I say, and I said it before, I have to give credit to the councillors because they are looking at areas that in the past have been sacrosanct, that have been the sacred cows. And so they're looking at areas to make sure that we're not missing anything where we can find a saving. So, um, I, I think we will get it down to that two and a half percent mark, um, but it's, there's still a lot of work to get there. Uh, we should caution our listeners too. Uh, even if that were to happen, uh, that's not the same for everybody because they were, uh, you know, it, the current value assessment comes into place here. Two and a half percent may be the norm across the province or the, the city, uh, but it's going to vary from uh, from neighborhood to neighborhood and ward to ward depending on the the values of the properties. Uh, some higher than others, obviously. So that two and a half percent may be a little higher. Actually, it could be a little, a little lower in some of these instances too. Uh, but we'll deal with those numbers, I guess, when uh, Mike Zagarek and his staff start doing the crunching on the numbers here right now. Are you comfortable with the way the process is happening the, 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 as, as this has evolved? You seem to be pretty much on schedule. I am comfortable with the, the, the timing and the management of it. Um, I would have preferred to have more of these discussions in public so that we're educating the public in terms of what areas we have been looking at. Um, but I understand that it's it's a lot of number crunching and 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 that doesn't make for great public meetings per se um so uh, overall I, i'm comfortable with where we are and where i think council is headed is about two and a half percent and i'm comfortable with that too I, we should just remind people that unlike federal and provincial governments which just take you know the tax off the off your paycheck uh, the city works it differently. I mean, you basically go down, especially with the operating budget, which is what we're talking about here. Uh, this is what you want to do. These are the services you want to provide. Here's the cost for them. Bingo, there's your budget. 
Uh, it's 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 a much more realistic way of doing it as opposed to what some of the other levels of government do. It's just simply tax, put the money uh, on a table there, and say, okay, now where are we going to spend it? You guys do it the other way. Well, we we can't ha- we cannot incur a deficit, as you know, Bill, from your time on council and and at any in every any given year. So as we budget and prepare our budgets and then um, finance ourselves during the year, we can't come in with a budget and say, okay, we're going to spend $10 million more than we actually take in in taxes and just put it on a deficit and carry it over. So we have to be 100% balanced, which is a little bit more of a challenge than the provinces and the feds. They, I mean, quite literally, they can spend more money than they're taking in and say, it's okay, we'll catch up later. We don't have that latitude. And so we very clearly make sure that everything that we're proposing, um, there's a, a revenue source that will pay for that. Warden High Council Brad Clark. Brad, good luck going forward on this. Uh, still some big challenges before we get this thing wrapped up. Appreciate your time today. Thanks, Bill. Have a great day. You too. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. When we had Brad Clark on just a few minutes ago, Council Brad Clark, we were talking about uh, some of the things. Obviously, you want to keep taxes low, but there are some services that, uh, well, that Council may have overlooked. One of them is snow clearing on sidewalks. Every year at budget time, we have this debate about whether or not the city should clear the sidewalks when they're doing the roads. And every year, you get a report from staff that says it's way too expensive, it's going to be problematic and onerous on taxpayers, so they just kind of throw it away. And, and even this year, uh, when there were a couple of presentations a while ago uh, to look at this, uh, as I mentioned, some councillors decided, okay, look, let's crunch some numbers. Others were rather dismissive right off the top. Uh, and I think that's, that's not really fair to a number of people that really need this sort of assistance. You know, there are two different things going on here. There's some people that just don't want to do their sidewalk or clear their sidewalk. Others who can't. And no matter which one of those is, is in play at any particular piece of property, if there's snow or ice on that road or that walkway, a number of people with mobility issues just can't get out. Or if they do, they, they're risking serious injury. So, as Brad Clark mentioned, some councillors are going to look at this and do some number crunching. Uh, Carl Anders is going to join us. Uh, Carl, of course, is uh, with the Vice President of Community, Hamilton Community Benefits Network, uh, and he is uh, he was at that meeting, and uh, he's going to talk to us right now about, uh, I, I think, the need for this sort of thing. Carl, thanks for jumping in here. I really appreciate you uh, joining us today. No problem, Bill. Thanks Thanks for having me. It's an important thing to talk about. Well, it absolutely is, because this is not just a, a I think as some counselors characterized this in the past, a, 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 you know, a, 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 an add-on item. This is a perk in some, it's not a perk. I think it's a necessity in a city like this. Oh, it, it absolutely is. And it, it's, um, I think a, a lot of your listeners might empathize with this. Some people, uh, like my grandmother, are lucky enough to have someone who can come by and shovel their snow for them. Um, but there are lots of people, as you mentioned in, in the introduction, who, let's just start with them, who can't get to shoveling their own snow. And the Snow Angels program that the city has leans heavily on volunteers to do this for residents. But they have, um, um, they're only able to match between 80 uh, to 90% of the residents who sign up for it. And not even everybody who's able to sign up for the program is even able to register. They're turning away people to that program. So there's a huge deficit in basically the city's been leaning on volunteers to do this work um, um, for folks who aren't able to clean their sidewalks. But I, I, I would think most homeowners aren't the offenders that are, are the problem here. When we're talking about mobility issues, there's lots of abandoned properties, parking lots, developments, 
I mean, you look all across this city, and this isn't limited to the upper city, the lower city. There are people all across this city who are who are running into these problems. And it's not just a matter of if you're or disabled or elderly or stuck in a mobility device. Even if you're able-bodied, sometimes trudging through the snow can be very difficult. Or if you've got a stroller and you're, you're a, a mother just trying to get your kids out to the park. Well, and we've seen all those examples that you've mentioned, you know, people struggling to get through, people slipping and falling, uh, and, and that's problematic, obviously. There's an injury involved. It could be legal action involved. I mean, uh, as I mentioned to Councillor Clark, I mean, there's going to be a cost to this, but there's a cost to not doing it as well. And, and I think that's got to be part of this discussion uh, to see exactly what we're going to do going forward. And, and, you know, to your point, though, Carl, we need to remind ourselves, the city already does sidewalks. Uh, in some areas where it's public property, where the city owns the property. Uh, uh, they for, also uh, do it in the former Ward 12 of Ancaster Yep, uh, as, as, a, as a public service. So they're already clearing about 16.2% of, of the, the sidewalks, or about 397 kilometers across the city. And this has been in play in Ancaster, pre-amalgamation. It was something it, that the Ancaster residents wanted to carry on. And it, it costs uh, costs us, I think Councillor Ferguson told me last year, I think it's about $11 a household for the for the season to, to clear. Uh, big deal. Yeah, big it's, big it's, deal. It's looking at and, and by the way, inflation somewhere between seven and fifteen. Now there's also talk uh, amongst uh, staff and came up yesterday at council about how it could lead to some more efficiencies in terms of, of the actual budgeting costs because these are estimates. Because um, you have to remember, right now, Parks goes out, it shovels the parks. The HSR goes out, it shovels a sidewalk. Other public works departments go shovel in front of city properties. Um, the the crews that handle the uh, former Ward 12 go out and they do that. So there's a lot of crossover. For example, I was walking uh, last snow event through a uh, park downtown here, and the park was shoveled, but the sidewalk adjacent to the park was, was unshoveled. How much t- extra time does it take a road crew to spend three seconds with that bobcat or with that sweeper and do that other small little section? Especially since they were already there. Mm-hmm, exactly. So I wonder how much duplication of this, especially if the city does keep this in-house, that, that we'll see that's, that's cleared up in these budget numbers. But they're not that, they're, they're really not that scary as, as, a, as a household. We're looking between 7 and $15, uh, uh, an average household. And and think of, think of the difference this is going to make. And I guess I've lived in Ancaster for about fifteen years, I guess now. And and uh, and by the way, the street uh, this is my our second house there. Uh, no, we don't have sidewalks in either one of them. There's a lot of streets in Ancaster with no sidewalks, mm-hmm. but they still gladly pay it because mm-hmm. you know their kids have to go to school, seniors have to get out to the go to the store, whatever the case might be. Uh, and it's accessibility. This is what it really comes down to. And I think uh, this is this is the, the the mindset I think the city has to take when they look into this. I know, I know that the mantra here is keep our taxes low. And they, they, okay, I get that. But at the same time, you want to have a city that's going to be safe. And I think you made the point at the uh, committee meeting the other day. Uh, if it's a priority for them to clear the roads so the cars can get by, shouldn't it be a priority to clear the sidewalks so pedestrians can get by? Yeah, absolutely. I did make that point. And um, yesterday at City Council, we saw about 30 people who, who, who came out of, of, of varying um, capacities to, to speak to this issue. And there were so many heartfelt presentations of people describing their own personal lived experience of being you know, trapped, trapped in their homes about being isolated. Um, there was a mother's group that came out to speak specifically to how it was affecting just, just moms and, and strollers and, and their, 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 their livelihoods. So it, this is a massive um, issue for a lot, of, a lot more people than I think you're, you're imagining. We're looking at pushing up to 20% of our, of our community being retired ages. We have one of the highest per capita rates of people with disabilities in Ontario. 
if not the highest. So, I mean, this is this is not just a, a, an issue that, that affects, I think if this affects a lot of your listeners, either know someone this could affect, they, they have a mother or a grandmother or a grandfather who are, or, or a cousin or someone who's in these situations who's being affected by this. And it, it is, as I said, if we can clear the, the sidewalks for... For cars, we can we can clear them for people. It's it's just it should be that simple. And, and I, listen, this is not just about seniors either. I mean, because I I can tell you right in our own neighborhood. I mean, uh, I know a couple of families that where the you know the, the the adults. This is the, this is the era of joint replacements too. And I mean that that's somewhat problematic when it comes to mobility for an awful lot of people. And getting down there and trying to shovel snow or trying to walk through slippery roads or sidewalks is going to be somewhat problematic. So there's an awful lot of people that are going to benefit from this. And uh, and again, I don't profess to be a public works expert on this, but it can't be that difficult because the bobcats are already out there. They're they're doing this. And I, there was an old neighborhood I lived in years ago, right across the road from a park. And every time there was a heavy snowfall, you'd see that bobcat running all the way down the sidewalk where the park was and stop right at the end of it where the senior, this elderly man was living all by himself. And I thought, for heaven's sake, another 20 feet, is it going to kill you? You know, but yeah. no, those are the regulations. Like, come on, we, we need to be practical about this. Well, and you talk about, of course, not just affecting the elderly. One of the stories I was uh, telling counsel of my own personal experience was I was involved in an automobile accident and I, um, I had a fractured pelvic bone. So I spent some time in a wheelchair and on crutches uh, right in the middle of winter. So I got a first-hand look of, of what it was really like to, to, to see this as an able-bodied person to have life just snatched from you in a second um, through no fault of your own, and you can't leave more than a couple of steps out your front door, um, you know, um, to, to, to even wheel down to the, to the corner store where you would jog off to or uh, around, the, around the corner. Um, I used to live near Ottawa Street at the time and you know, go out to the pub or anything. I was completely trapped without some, some assistance and without the uh, streets being cleared. I had absolutely no independence. And this was a, a long time I spent both on crutches and in a wheelchair. And it, it, was, it was quite, quite disabling. There needs to be a broader discussion about this. I mean, I had a, a panel of counselors on here yesterday uh, who were talking about cost efficiencies, et cetera, which is what they're all doing this time of year because they're trying to get the numbers down. I understand that. Uh, but I asked them about this program, and I said, look, and, and there are things that they can do. They dismissed the idea of biweekly garbage collection in the winter, too, because they said, oh, they, no, people would be outraged by this. I, I don't think so, frankly. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you start looking for cost savings in other places instead of saying we can't afford to do this. Exactly, and I mean they, they they tend to overlook some of those those low hanging fruits for for cost savings. Um, I you mentioned biweekly garbage collection in the winter, and I that always seemed like a, a no brainer to me. But I mean we we look at the uh, the sacrosanct police services budget that goes up every year with without a n- narrow whisper as a priority item that gets done, and um and that's of course the safety of our community is of massive concern. But this is a safety issue this is a justice issue this is a an issue for a lot of people and i think it's it's as important as the police budget for a great many people in getting out of their home and another point i wanted to make is um year on year we see big increases in the darts budget and everybody talks a lot about the the, the darts budget as as you know a ballooning out of control i believe one counselor uh, put it and i look at snow clearing as an easy way to divert some some city tax funds into a way that would get people into transit. Part of the reason um, DARTS offers door-to-door service with, with some problems for, for 
people in, in some cases, and it's an excellent service. But what would be great is if I didn't have to wait um, 24 or 48 hours or a schedule for a scheduled DART pickup, and I could make my way down to the bus stop and, and make my own way uh, on my trip or on my journey. And having cleared sidewalks certainly is something that would accomplish that. I'm getting all kinds of emails as you, as you and I are having this discussion about people saying, you know how much I pay for snow clearing? Uh, and yeah, I do. Because uh, if you have a private contractor to come in and do that, it can be anywhere from about 400 to $800, depending on your property and how big exactly. your driveway is and everything. Uh, and we should mention, by the way, if the city does uh, enact this program, all they're going to do is the sidewalk. I mean, you're still they're on your own to get your driveway done. In front of your house. Yeah, that's, uh, which is going to be a huge part. Because this is all about public safety and mobility. Uh, mm-hmm. But on the other hand, uh, and, you know, and private contractors are going to say, hey, you're cutting into our work. Uh, they get there eventually. Not everybody can afford to pay 500 bucks to have somebody come and do their so- snow for the season. Uh, as you mentioned, there's the Snow Angels program. But the, there are a lot of gaps here, Carl. That's what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this is this is not like a new idea. Mississauga, St. Catharines, Burlington, Oakville, London, and even parts of Toronto all take care of this. They all do this in some way or another at varying uh, varying levels and varying levels of service. The other thing that snuck through everyone's attention that I wanted to mention as I was going over the report yesterday after council is that um, by switching to this, this new snow removal plan, we're going to be switching from salt to de-icing material, which is an environmental uh, impact that I'm surprised nobody from the city or council picked up on. As you know, salt moving into our watershed through our, our sewer systems is a, a huge concern uh, in terms of uh, brackish water affecting our local waterways. So the removal of salt and the switching to de-icing material um, which is being budgeted for if we, the city's like, well, while we're switching everything over, we might as well switch to the icing material. There's another environmentalist impact that's kind of just slipped by everybody's perspective on this. Well, and, and I think there has to be you know, a, a different mindset here. This is what this comes down to. And, and I'm not going to go all the way down the road and say this is an essential service, but it is a, it is a public safety issue. You know, if we didn't, if we didn't plow the roads, there'd be a hue and cry saying, "Look at what you're going on." I, I, I mentioned before to our listeners, uh, we we're out to Calgary for Grey Cup uh, back in November, and uh, it was a great trip except for the game itself. But anyway, uh, when we got, they had a snowfall the day before that, and as we were going from the airport into town, uh, I saw cars slipping and sliding all over the place. Mm-hmm. And I, I said, "Don't they have snow tires?" And the, the driver said, "Sure, they all do, but they don't." They don't do the streets here. Uh, they they plow them, but they don't put anything at all on the surface. So if there's ice, there's ice, and you have to deal with that. It says it's a cost-cutting measure. And they said that's what cities all over the West were doing. And now, you know, we're faced with some of these same challenges. But that means you have to prioritize what's important to you. And public safety is important for pedestrians and for motorists. It is, absolutely. Because the other thing that happens is when the sidewalks aren't clear, people end up walking in the roads. Yep. Um, or they end up using their mobility devices in the roads. And, I mean, that's just a, a, a clear danger for, for everyone involved, drivers and pedestrians. I also want to mention that there's some, some rather big um, holes in enforcement. A lot of the times this, whenever this conversation comes up, people are like, well, why don't we just, you know, start charging those people or, or you know, start offending them. And, unfortunately, the, it, it looks very much like there is no way that any bylaw could, could change this event. Um, no amount of enforcement seems to be able to, to, to cause this event. We had one of the presenters at, at council go over a, a case study of one uh, particular property downtown that he had been working with the property owners, with bylaw, with the local city councillor, to try and actively make sure it was clear. And every snowfall, it became another challenge to just get this property cleared. 
Well, and there's a process uh, for anybody who thinks, well, why can't they just go out there and do that? And I, I, Yeah, th- theoretically, yes, that's right. If nobody does what they're supposed to do, the city will come and clear it, and they'll charge it, put it on their property taxes. But that's Ooh. after a couple of warnings. And So in other words, while that process is unfolding, which could take three or four or five days, uh, that 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 property is dangerous. You you can't walk through there. That that becomes the problem. Why not just get it done? Yeah, absolutely. And 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 by by the the um the burden of this being shared across all of of the taxpayers. Not only does it uh, it helps, but I think about um for me um if it's if I get up in the morning, I you know I'm not going to shovel the snow before I go to work. I'm just I slept in a little bit, and I come back home from work, and the city's at least on the front of my property, so I know that no one's going to slip in front of my property, and all I have to do is take care of my front stoop. I mean, you know, that's 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 a huge advantage to me, and that's worth the, the up to fifteen dollars a year on on my property taxes in, in a heartbeat. Well, you can talk to Councillor Wilson out in Ward One by McMaster, or Councillor Whitehead, or Councillor Danko out of the West Mountain, where the Mohawk student housing is. That's one of the big problems on some of those side streets where there's student housing, uh, because the landowner, nine times out of ten, the property owner doesn't even live there. Doesn't even live in the ham in the city, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the residents, i.e., the students, are not going to pick up a snow shovel and start doing the snow. That's just that's not going to happen. I, so, I, I'd like to, I, you know, I'm not being a, a student too long ago myself. I'd like to say that there are some that that would do that, but it's a huge issue. Sure, uh, it is. Properties across the city. You get a multi-density tower in in Ward Two or 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 three, and the the um and during a heavy snowfall, whoever they've contracted to do the snow is behind, so the property doesn't get shoveled for three or four days. It's not like you know the uh, property owner or you know is going to come down there and shovel the snow themselves, right? They're waiting for that snow removal company to come and and take care of it, but they're overbooked because. They've got a bunch of contracts, but they're you know way behind because there's just been a heavy snowfall. It's 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 a mess for a lot of things: um, empty lots, parking lots, you you name it. Um, you know, large large malls and and plazas. You see this going up uh, Upper James uh, a lot of the times. Um, car dealerships and stuff like that. There'll there'll be no snow shoveled all along the sidewalks all the way up Upper James. It's a huge problem, and I, I think that this is a an elegant and and very low cost solution. Well, especially numbers can scare you, and I understand that. When staff come back with this stuff, and you've been around council enough, Carlo, to understand, it can be a little intimidating when they start talking about, well, this is going to be three and a half million, this is going to be nine million, and wow, that's a huge number. Break it down. What's it going to cost me? Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, you know, if I if I every day looked at how much uh, my mortgage is, I you know, I'd I'd be a depressed guy. But I know, oh, okay, I can afford this. What I, our yearly mortgage was, and our, yeah, our, our yearly rental. Um, yeah, absolutely. It would be an intimidating number. But when you break it down, you know, by paycheck or whatever, it, 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 it's, it's, it's okay. We can handle this, mm-hmm. you know, and it's the same thing with this. If it's going to cost anywhere from 7 to $15, you yeah. can handle that, yeah. you know, because we're all sharing in the cost. I mean, that's that's the whole property tax idea. We all spread the cost around everyone else, and it becomes a safer city as a result. I just I just hope our city councilors can see that when, when they get down to, to actually discussing this. No, I, I, I really, really hope so, and I, I hope that the, um, you know, the councillor of the former um, Ward 12 um, appreciates the fact that uh, the city would like this service as, his, as the residents do there, because it's a, it's, it's a really good um, a way to, to stop residents from struggling to get around the city after a major snowfall event, um, whether they're able-bodied or not. And I, I strongly believe that this is a, a mobility, a, a justice, and an equity issue that can be easily solved by a, a small um, sharing of the burden across the residents. Hope so. Carl, thanks as always. Appreciate your time today. 
Yeah, you have a wonderful day, Bill. You Bye. too. Take care. Carl Anders, of course, from the Hamilton Community Benefits Network. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Virtual medicine, virtual health services here in this country. Uh, there is a virtual care task force, a collaboration of the Canadian Medical Association, the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada, and the College of Family Physicians of Canada, all uh, working together now. And the report they've come out with is called Virtual Care Recommendations for Scaling Up Virtual Medical Services. Uh, it's a very in-depth report and, and a, a really, I think, a, a map, a roadmap for us to move forward uh, in this very important endeavor. Joining us to talk about the report is uh, Dr. Ewan Affleck, who is a Virtual Care Task Force Co-Chair for the College of Family Physicians of Canada. Uh, Dr. Affleck, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thank you, Bill. Are we, are we behind? Are we moving along at, at the same pace as other nations that are, are looking at virtual care from health care? Uh, I, I get the sense of looking at some of these things here that we're a little dragging our heels a little bit. Um, I, I think we are dragging our heels a little, little bit, and, and that in no way is an indictment of, of the many Canadians and, and many health professionals that are working on this file. And there are some excellent instances of virtual care, there are uh, efforts and projects and services underway. However, as, a, as an overall system, uh, it, it, the, the care in Canada is quite fractured, and the virtualization of care, meaning the delivery of care you know, across distance to patients and their families, is, is far from what it could be. Doctor, it sounds as if the, the one of the major challenges here is the same challenge we have in Canada with so many other things, uh, economic, uh, social programs, uh, business, etc., is we have different templates in different parts of the country, and there doesn't seem to be a, a, a common plate here that we can work from. And you, you have read that very correctly. Um, you know, I like to say that in Canada, you know, e-health or virtualization of care is constitutionally designed to fail because from the Constitution and the Canada Health Act, the, the governance or oversight of health care is then broken up um, between provinces and territories, and even within those jurisdictions, it's further broken up. And if you look at virtual care in its optimal state, it means the capacity for health information to follow a patient over the course of their care, wherever they may be located or wherever they may be with their circle of care. So in a way, the governance model of healthcare uh, it does not align with that at all, and this has become a, a real problem. How uh, active a partner is government in this whole situation? I mean, we've seen with just about every other endeavor, whether it's medical or otherwise, doctor, uh, governments tend to move at glacial speed. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's somewhat problematic for those that feel that, look, we need to get together and coordinate this. I mean, they have to have a, a role here, don't they? Yeah, uh, they absolutely do. And, and the, you know, the healthcare is a provincially and territorially mandated domain. And for the most part, the federal government doesn't have um, as much uh, obligation or responsibility over the healthcare system as, as laid out in the Canada Health Act. Um, but uh, and and it's a it's a very big challenge for government. It's not an easy thing. There's almost forty cents on average on the Canadian dollar today in Canada is spent on health care. Uh, forty cents on every Canadian tax dollar is mm-hmm. what I meant to say. Uh, so so a big proportion of of our tax money is going to to health care. 
Um, but it, it's a it's a real challenge. It's a complex, dynamic environment, and in a way, in Canada, no one is quite in charge. It's there's, there's private sector uh, involvement, there's private clinics, private services, there's government uh, services and insured services. There's now the sort of advent of of private sector uh, virtual care and technologies. Uh, and then there is the patient, right, and the recipient, the beneficiary of care. So, you know, in order to affect a coherent virtual care environment, all these people, we all need to basically sit down and begin designing it in a collaborative way, and that is a, a challenging ask. It's necessary, though, isn't it? I mean, as you mentioned, 40 cents out of every tax dollar is going towards health care. Uh, we can't, uh, and every politician will tell you this, and I know you're well aware of it, Doctor, we can't keep throwing money at the system and think it's going to become more efficient. We've got to design a, a better system, a, a 21st century system. I couldn't agree with you more. We we don't really have much choice, and, and the, the percent of, of tax money going healthcare has been increasing. I think it's leveled off a little, but I'm not certain, but it has been increasing over the years. And with an aging population, uh, which we are in Canada, it can be expected to to increase, or at least the forces are there for it to increase. So this is a challenge. So we really have to reconsider or reimagine how we do healthcare. And the potential for virtualized care, just as an example, Kaiser Permanente is, is, a, is a health service in the United States. 59% in their last study of all care is provided virtually. If you look at Canada, I'm actually based in the Northwest Territories, and if you look at Canada and providing care to remote and rural places, we spend a vast amount of money simply moving people around transportation, there's a lack of equity of care in these uh, in remote and rural places, and there's also significant advantages to people in urban locations. If we virtualize care, there are significant efficiencies. People may be able to access care more in, on a more timely basis. It potentially can be more safe and certainly uh, effective um, because you have services that are not necessarily in your community. Um, and it is patient. It's, it's fundamentally needs to be centered around the needs of the patient. So there are huge opportunities here, but as you suggest, what's obstructing it is our capacity to get together as an industry and, and talk about a, a systematic design. Isn't that one of the, 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 I guess, basic flaws of our system as it stands right now? Now, now up in the Northwest Territories, obviously, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's fairly obvious to you, but I mean, even here in Ontario... Uh, is some of the smaller communities, and when I say northern Ontario, I mean we're talking about you know places like Kenora, but it could be anywhere. Basically, the patient has to go to where the services are available. Um, you know, they they might be able to stitch you up if you fall and hurt yourself, but I mean if you have something else going on, uh, you've got to travel to Toronto or to to London or to wherever else here in Ontario uh, to find the sorts of services you need. And, and uh, you know, to suggest that maybe there's a better way, a virtual way of doing this, of diagnosis and and a possibly even of treatment seems to be a common-sense approach to that. Yeah, it absolutely is. And, and as I said, with, with, with um, best practice examples in, in other jurisdictions, this is being demonstrated. So the opportunity is there for us. Uh, and, and yes, this is occurring not only in, in, in Arctic Canada, 
but in in other places such as Ontario, and I used to work in Rainy River. I was there. You go. <laughs> seven years, so I'm I'm well aware of the dynamic there of medevacking and transporting people. Um, so so and and certainly not all medical conditions and health conditions are amenable to virtualization, but a significant proportion are, uh, and and so we have to begin considering how we can do that and how to. To, to set up our workflow and our policy and our governance in a manner that, that enables this. Because it's not the technology that's the problem. The technology exists, sure. it works, but, but it's how we organize ourselves as an industry and govern ourselves around the technology that is the impediment. You seem, I'm just looking at some of the subsets here, the working models and the working groups that you, you've established with your organization here with the Virtual Care Task Force. Inoperability and governance uh, is is one that you've talked about a couple of times in our conversation here, Doctor. Uh, let's talk about that from the perspective of the medical profession itself. Can they set up their own uh, governance infrastructure itself? And I, as I say, I'm not trying to be overly cynical, but if you wait for governments to, to be a, an active participant in this, you'd be waiting forever. Uh, would it be faster and more efficient for you to simply say, this is the thing that we think is going to work and this is how it's going to work? But governments seem to work a lot better if they are, if somebody does the, the the heavy lifting for them and they say, okay, here's what we think is going to happen. You know, this this um, task force was put together by three national physician organizations, and and that's a precedent that is important because traditionally they haven't collaborated on this sort of thing. Although I mean, there's always been a good relationship, but but they recognize. Uh, the three organizations recognize the importance of collaboration around this issue. Um, it, it would be hard for the CMA and the two colleges to to change virtual care in isolation. We really do need the cooperation of other professionals, the nurses, the pharmacists, other power professionals, and, and allied healthcare services, and we need the cooperation of government, and importantly, we need to include the patient. So as I really can't see in isolation any of the players being able to move this without um, uh, collaboration. But I knew, I know, for instance, that tomorrow the, the Health Canada is having a, a retreat on virtual care. There are things moving, and so I'm, I'm optimistic that, uh, that, that there will be a renewed or a new sense of, of, of collaboration and, and a recognition of the impediments to, to virtual care uh, that exist here in Canada. You just mentioned a number of very important stakeholders that need to be involved in this. Are they all willing participants in this? Do they all want to be around the table as this develops? Well, th- so this task force has a physician bias. The, the report has a physician bias, and this is not because we believe that virtual care is the domain of physicians, not at all. Physicians are just one player. A coherent virtual care environment has a team or a circle of providers that work with the patient and the family. Uh, And so that team needs to be nimble and it needs to be broad, depending on the patient's clinical uh, condition, right? Uh, So, uh, and I I mentioned many of them, nurses, social workers, uh, you know, clerics, uh, whomever, right? Uh, uh, so, So all of these people need to be involved. Uh, virtual care is not about one profession or 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 one uh, one one group. Uh, so and 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 so the report is really meant. It's the physician standing up and saying we need to do this, but we want to work with 
with with our colleagues and and patients and families around this. Um, so that's a very important message. Doctor, is there a template that you, that you can look towards for for guidance on this? Somebody who's maybe a little further down the road. I, we keep hearing, for instance, uh, for instance, Scandinavian countries and, and the UK come to mind right off the bat uh, that seem to be moving a little faster towards integrated health systems that are far more efficient in in the delivery of these services. Uh, are, are they on track to do these sorts of things as well? Yeah, I mean, there are many best instances, and I, I want to acknowledge in Canada that our, our best uh, practices in, in virtual care There's the Ontario Telehealth Network, uh, which provides uh, excellent service. They have a robust stroke service um, where um, people get rapid care because they're able to read remotely whether someone is having a hemorrhagic or, a, or um, an occlusive stroke. Um, and and provide the appropriate care. This has revolutionized care and, and saved people's lives. Uh, the Northwest Territories actually has the most integrated health information environment in Canada, which uh, is not well understood. <laughs> but uh, everyone, there is one single charting system for all patients through all 33 communities in the entire place. So there's messaging going back and forth around patient care for the circle of care. And there are many other examples um, in Canada. Those are just two of them. Uh, so we, we don't have to look that far. This can occur. Um, and then internationally, certainly I mentioned Kaiser Permanente, which is probably the leader uh, in, there in the United States, but many of the Scandinavian countries and, and, and other Australian New Zealand have integrated systems that, that in certain cases work more optimally. It's uh, just to go back to our, one of the original points, I guess, in our conversation. It sounds as if the the, the desire is here to get this done, uh, as you mentioned. The infrastructure is here. I, just trying to get everybody into the the same tent, I guess, and 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 going in the same direction. Which is uh, unfortunately in Canada, when you're trying to do that with so many different uh, regional uh, offices and and mindsets, it's akin to herding cats sometimes. But it is possible, I suppose. Absolutely, it's possible. And the one thing I would correct the infrastructure is not. Here necessarily, the technology exists to do this well. Um, has it been fully deployed, and and, and is uh, are we technologically interoperable? No, but the technology exists. That's not the that's not the impediment. It's a matter of choosing and selecting and and ensuring that that we set up interoperable systems, that we have also payment models that allow people to be compensated for this, that we have license models that allow providers to to move across the system, that we provide patients with their information and that they are meaningful and 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 central partners in their health information, which really is not something that we have done very well. But again, the technology exists to do that. It's just not something that we traditionally have done terribly well, although, again, in Canada there are instances of that, and it is moving in that direction. Uh, an essential part of the evolution of our medical system and medical delivery of, uh, in, in this country as well. Doctor, thank you uh, so much for the time today. Continued good luck with the work that you and your organizations are doing on this. Thank you very much, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. 
I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.